Shalom. Welcome to Rivkush, a CJN podcast featuring conversations with Jews of color discussing all things Jewish. My guest today is Brandy Shafatinsky, who is a social worker, writer, researcher, advocate. Brandy has worked towards advancing the rights of victims and survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault within the military community through practice, education, and research. Currently, her focus is on developing intercultural and academic opportunities to enhance liberal democratic ideals. So please join me in welcoming Brandy, who I think her bio actually doesn't tell you the depth of Brandy and the work that Brandy does. I am a super fan of Brandy. Initially, before I got to really see the work that you did, read your articles in the Times of Israel, see your incredible social media posts that sometimes make me angry, sometimes makes me laugh. Before that, you were Noah's mom. (laughs) (laughs) But now you are simply Brandy. (laughs) So Brandy, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. First of all, how are things in Israel? Good. Um, Everything's going well. Getting to put my toes in the sand and feet in the Mediterranean, which is always nice in the summertime. Oh, yeah. I am super jealous. People complain about Israel in the summer, say, oh, it's so hot. It's so hot. And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? I usually go when it's so rainy, so rainy, so cold. So (laughs) I would rather be there definitely in the summer. So, So one of the things that caught my eye on your bio, um, because I, I actually have somewhat of a connection to that in my previous life in that I was a sane nurse. I believe that's what they call it in the United States. Um, And for those who don't know, it's sexual assault nurse examiner. And I see that you do work in that area. Um, Can you tell me what led you to, to focus on that field? Because it's not an easy field to focus on for one thing. And just tell me what, what brought you there and tell me a little bit about the work that you do. Sure. Um, when I was actually um, studying for in grad school many years ago, I was actually pregnant with Noah. Um, I work, got a part-time opportunity with, at the YWCA of Honolulu. And I worked with um, victims of domestic violence, helping them more through legal proceedings, obtain uh, training orders, protective orders through any type of child support, child custody issues and safety planning. And that's actually what brought me into the field of social services and social work. Um, It was a very, like a long time ago, we were living in Hawaii at the time. When I, when we moved back to the mainland and we were living in San Diego, California, um, I ended up taking a similar position, but within the military community. So I started working not just with victims and and survivors of domestic violence, but also of sexual assault and um, worked very closely with a lot of wonderful sane nurses. What you do um, is so needed and so difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think that having people there to work with individuals that have gone through such trauma um, that can exhibit empathy and professionalism in in that very fine balance is um, good work. It's necessary work. Absolutely. And why in particular the military setting? I'm I'm a little curious about that. Sure. Um, My husband um, is retired uh, Navy. So I I, um, 
actually started working with a community that I was very familiar with because I was part of it on a personal side. That's really the only reason when I initially entered the field when I was at the YWCA, I was working with, with civilians, um, which I've done since, but most of my work in that field has been with the military community. Okay, awesome, because it is good work and it's challenging work, but it's so important. Um, so now you are currently focusing let, let, let me take it back a step. What was your, because you recently became a PhD, and can I tell you, um, I felt this, this overwhelming feeling of pride when I saw that posting. I was like, you go, girl. I was just, I was just like, yes, doctor. (laughs) I I really was. I, cause it's something that I think we as a community, not just, you know, people of color, but women, we need to see role models like you. And I was, I was overwhelmed with joy. I really was because it's like, thank you. Great. You are a shining example of the importance of education and the importance of, of making those moves. So what I would like to know is what did you focus on? And as far as your thesis, share with us what you did. Yeah, I did. Um, I, I, the, my focus of my dissertation was uh, exploring the lived experiences of Mina Jews through a digital storytelling approach. So I had three brilliant participants sit with me, um, not in person, because it was during COVID, actually similar like this on Zoom. And they allowed me to record their stories, the stories of their and experiences of their families, um, of people who hold very uh, specific identity and stories and experiences that are really not well and uh, known and widely shared. Um, stories of triumph and of, of course, heartbreak and trauma, but very in a very, very personal, intimate manner. And I wanted to focus on that group of people, which are very, very diverse. And my, my participants were very diverse, different, um, with different experiences. Um, but specifically because looking at what happens when a certain group of people are, are either, either explicitly or, in, or implicitly erased from a narrative of story. That is powerful because it is something that, you know, I've noticed is we hear a lot about the Eastern European story. We hear about the Holocaust. We hear a little bit about the expulsions from Spain and Portugal, but we really don't hear enough about the stories of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and what they went through. We may hear the narrative, you know, the narrative of when they talk about, you know, um, the Nakba, for example, when they talk about Palestinians being, and I'm saying this is the quotation, expelled from Israel, not recognizing, but hold up, we have a whole story ourselves. So can you share some of what you, what you found out in the, in these conversations? Sure. Um, A lot of the a lot of the kind of foundational information that I think was necessary to discover and to share that isn't is centered around the idea of Zionism and just being self-determination of a people and Israel's right to exist. And the real, um, I don't know if it's just willful ignorance from other people or if it's purposeful erasure of the idea that without the state of Israel, Hundreds of thousands, millions of people would not be here today because they had nowhere else to go when they were expelled from these lands. And really centering that 
idea, that that historical fact in, in, uh, in my research was really important to me. One of the things that I found out that I hadn't been aware of um, until I started doing, doing some of this research was the fact that there were actual concentration camps, death camps in places outside of Europe. Um, in North Africa, the type of close collaboration that the pan-Arab leaders of the time had with the Nazi party uh, that just isn't um, discussed, that the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem is meeting with Hitler face-to-face -to, -face to discuss how he can um, start establishing that type of genocidal terror to the Jews here in, in the Middle East in, in uh, North Africa. I almost have no words. Um, yeah. Uh I almost have no words because that is the narrative that, you know, we hear about is that the Holocaust, for example, was very specific to um, Jews in Europe and that that concentration camps very specific to to Europe and, you know, in particular located primarily in Poland. And we, we hear that. So can you elaborate more on the concentration camps in North Africa? I mean, I'm, I'm a bit gobsmacked, actually. Well, that's, it's, it's very similar to when we talk about World War II as a whole. We don't discuss what happened in what were colonial lands, so under British control or French control or German control outside of Germany. So looking at, um, at, at Libya, for example, which was under the control of France, well, France fell to the Nazis, so a Vichy French regime came in and had camps set up, had started to establish similar type either strictly death camps or work camps to put their Libya, Jewish population in Libya in to eliminate them. And then what happened in the aftermath and just kind of expanding on the idea of the Holocaust that happened like in, in Europe was specific and it was specific to Europe and, yes. and it was also generalized to the Jewish community as a whole globally. And a lot of it is because the war didn't just happen in, in, in Europe. It happened, we know, in the Pacific and it happened yes. in North Africa and in the Middle East and looking at the aftermath of, of that what, and what happened afterwards. And I think that the idea... Um, one of the one of the interesting things that I discovered is the idea that the issue with the Arabs and the Israeli Arabs and uh, Arabs in this region now only uh, and, and Jewish people in this region now only started ha occurring after the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948 ignores all of the pogroms, all of the clashes, all of the attempted ethnic cleansing of Jews from this region that predate the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Exactly. Kind of telling exactly. the whole story the history wow. of the Jewish people doesn't start with world war ii or with 1948 it predates that but when we have a conversation about jewish identity or zionism or the state of israel or the palestinians we only go back so far and just ignore all of all of a big huge chunk majority in fact of history absolutely well i um i need to get a copy of your dissertation brandy <laughs> <laughs> No, really. One of the things where I work, I work um, for a synagogue. And one of the things we do every year is, as most synagogues do, is there's Holocaust Education Week and we do some education around the Holocaust. We, um, you know, for our, our Yisker book, we have stories from the Holocaust. And I'm telling you, just listening to you now, I'm thinking to myself, maybe this is the year that we tell the stories from MENA Jews. Yeah. I think this this sounds like this is the year it needs to start. 
So I thank you for that. Um, and I also, I also clocked that you use the same terminology I use in terms of Israel. I never say the establishment of the state of Israel. I always say the re-establishment of the state of Israel because words matter. Yes. Words matter. And when, and like you just articulated, when you, when you use certain words, it ignores the before, right? When you say reestablishment, it acknowledges the before and the history, because we know it's a long history and it needs to be recognized. So you have a love of Israel. It is clear. You're sitting up in there now. So So it's very clear to me. It's very clear to me in the work that I've, in your work that I've read, I um, sometimes kind of stalk your Twitter feed and and check out what's going on. So um, you, I would like you to talk to me, to us about some of the challenges that you faced when you are um, on social media putting out the Zionist pro-Israel voice and some of the challenges and some of the themes that you are coming across, especially as a person of color. Yeah. Um, I don't like on social media. It's, I don't uh, have too many issues because usually I'm not, uh, you know, don't feed the trolls. I don't go back and forth with people in comments. I don't okay. get involved in that. I don't have the uh, bandwidth and patience. For I, I hear you. Um, that can suck your soul actually and then yeah. you're like an hour later you're like seriously yeah how did i let this doing. happen <laughs> anyways continue um the really the underlying theme is just uh, historical inaccuracies i'm i'm baffled and and disheartened by the level of lies that are just spewed everywhere there's an, a time there's a, a space to obviously de- debate policies and then there, which is fine if we were doing that. Unfortunately, what's happening is just lies being spewed. And I think that getting away from the idea of Zionism being one of the most successful indigenous rights movements in modern time to, oh, well, I, you know, I'm an anti-Zionist because I don't like Netanyahu. Like, that's just mm. a nonsense argument. I, that, that overcoming that type of, um, those types of falsehoods, I think think is probably the biggest hurdle and challenge that I've seen because there's so many and so prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find, how do you find our online Jewish brothers and sisters? Do you find it more of a challenge to, to combat that kind of um, ignorance among, what's the word I'm looking for? Do you find it more challenging among our own Jewish brothers and sisters to cha- to challenge those falsehoods? And, and if so, like, how do you navigate that? I mean, I think that truth can always overcome lies. Um, the people that I'm connected to, fellow Jews, fellow Zionists, have been doing the work to, to overcome lies and, and doing it quite well. I think that one of the things that maybe is, um, and this is a more of a cynical take, but one of the things that I think maybe we're grappling with as a community is at a certain point, the realization that they don't care if it's lies, you know, there's a mm-hmm. level and a layer of anti-Semitism and just Jew hatred that will take any lie, any conspiracy, any trope and latch onto it as long as it gives them an excuse to demonize the state of Israel or to hate Jews. 
and that's something that I don't, I don't really know um, how it would be overcome. Like just blatant hatred is, yeah. isn't something that can be educated out of ignorance can. And yes. as you know, I'm not expecting everybody to know everything. So that's great when we can have conversation and, and somebody's like, you know, I didn't know that. Perfect. You know, we, none of us know everything, but when it's really just an excuse to engage in Jew hatred, that's a whole different um, issue to tackle. And I think that that's where we're at. The last major conflict, because in my opinion, there's it's ongoing conflict. But in the last, the last major conflict, really for me, said even though I think I always knew this, for me it said it, it's 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 hatred because it's if I give you fact and you still choose to disregard that fact or you say yeah 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 whatever, but then I'm dealing with something else and mm-hmm. I can't fix your hate. Um, you only you can fix your hate. And all I all I can do at this point is protect myself from your hate. And sadly, in some cases, protect myself physically from your hate, Um, physically, sadly, but also emotionally, spiritually, whatever, I just have to protect myself from you, because I'm not going to fix you. Mm -hmm. Only you can fix you. Um, You define yourself, do you define yourself as in your views as as liberal? Or does, yeah. is it, does it ebb and flow or? No, I mean, I think that I, the core of my beliefs are, are liberal democratic values. I'm, I've been, um, what would have been before, um, considered a liberal Democrat in the United States of America. I don't know in current terms what, how I would define myself because where the people who self-define as liberal Democrats or democratic socialists or whatever any of that is, doesn't align with one liberalism. Um, but it doesn't align with my political political views. I'm very socially liberal. Um, I'm also, you know, uh, hawkish when it comes to national security and also just self-defense um, and doing what's right. So I'm not, I've never been liberal where I um, am a pacifist. I'm not, never have been, probably never will be. But as far as social values, um, I've always been, I've always been liberal. Yeah, it is. It is interesting, you know, even in asking that question, how it feels like even more and you you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel especially, well, it's a little bit in Canada too. It's getting there also, but in, in my feeling is in the United States, people are being really forced to define themselves in these strict margins and to almost pigeonhole themselves. You know, even as I was asking you that question, I don't know if you noticed, I kind of hesitated because I was like, like, what does that mean? Do I have to break it down and say, you know, do I mean big D Democrat, small D Democrat? Do I mean, you know, like, it's like, yeah, it's, it's almost and and it's almost at the point where you're almost afraid to say what you are in some settings because of what the perception may be. Like, am I wrong or does it, is that how we've, where we're moving to? I feel like we've moved there. Um, I, I, I can say to, when I self-define as a liberal Democrat, I can say that proudly because I know what liberal democratic values are and they value individualism and agency and also community responsibility. Um, it's not, it's not as narrow or traditionally hasn't been as narrow as, as, um, what, how it seems in, in current events and current times. So I think that there's, um, I, I, a lot of times, you know, you get told, well, if you're a Zionist and you have to be a right wing and only vote for Republicans because of A, B, and C, and, or if you're a liberal, then you have to be this and only vote for these types of Democrats because of A, B, and C. And I just, I don't, um, I don't buy into that. I, I don't, I think that that's, it's just not the reality that we're in. I think that 
people and I mean and politics because of people mm -hmm. are more complex than that. And I think that that's important to stick to the idea that we're more complex than that, not try to dumb it down because that gets into dangerous ideology where you have groupthink and you have purges of people because they don't line up completely 100% perfectly with one very narrow platform. Right, right. And and I think we are seeing that and we have seen that. And, you know, it's funny, I'm, I'm not... I'm a lurker on social media. I used to be super active, like on Twitter, I was a lunatic. And but we're talking years ago, lunatic, um, to the point where when I went on it last year, I had to purge some people because I was like, oh, based on my lunacy from years ago, you think I am this sort of person. And I can't, no, please don't follow me. Like, <laughs> you know, like, it was like, oh, no, 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 no. That is actually not me. I was just caught up in stuff. So I, I just had to be more of a lurker. But I, I one time, maybe four years ago, posted a message on my Facebook page because my pa Facebook page, in case you haven't noticed, it's basically on lockdown. I don't have a lot of personal stuff there. I don't really, you know, every now and then I post something goofy, maybe. When I do post something political, I instantly instantly regret it because then on one hand I instantly regret it because then I got to monitor my page which is not what I set it up to have to do but mm -hmm. then I'm also grateful because then I delete people including those <laughs> I know in real life because their their crap has shown up on my page so it's like oh you really are a bleep and bleep delete <laughs> and block but I remember one time I asked the community what they thought I was politically just based on my posts, based on whatever, right? Whatever they could see. And it was interesting. No one could really figure it out because it was so neutral. And I kind of leave it that way because sometimes I feel if I do identify as that, just like you said, there is going to be this perception where they're going to try and like say, okay, if she says, like you said, if she says she's Zionist, then she must be this, that, and the other. And, you know, she must hang out, you know, she must have a picture of Kahana on her wall and she must be this and she must be that. And it's like, I can be this without having all those other things, right. just like you said, you know? So it is, it's, I think, Brandy, it's a really tricky waters that we are trying to wade through and tread through and swim through these days as Jews. Um, now as Jews of color, let's get on to that. So you are Jewish raising Jews of color. And, you know, I have to say, based on what your son has said, I was like, your parents, they got it together. <laughs> I was like, dang. <laughs> so um, how was it? Because, you know, we hear from, you know, I'll talk about my experiences, you know, being a Jew of color. We don't often talk about Jews of color raising Jews of color. If you know what I'm saying, Jewish yeah. moms, Jewish moms, uh, this is it's almost a tongue twister for me and let me try this again let me try and get a hold of the queen's english mothers who are jews of color raising jews of color sometimes i think it's a different road we walk um so share a little bit about that path that you walked so my we have four beautiful wild smart kids um and the, the we're only jews of color in america in Israel, we're just Jews. Yep. And um, I think that it's, I grapple with the terminology because I know that where half of our people live, that's not a thing. Um, and then, but I'm an American and grew up in America and raised my children in America. 
um, I think that the one of the underlying uh, values that my husband, myself, we're raising them to hold is to be unapologetic. This is what you are. There isn't a, oh, I'm sorry that I'm this and you may feel uncomfortable because this is my identity. There's no, I mean, there's none of that. This is just, this is who we are. And because we are this, these are some of the things you're going to have, you're going to be faced with. Um, I've told my kids since they were little, you know, you guys are black Russian Jews. Everybody will hate you. Buckle up. Don't <laughs> hate yourselves. Like I, and it, it, dang, I, I have, but it's, it's true. Um, the ideas that in all three of those identities, um, uh, the, the thoughts that they inspire in others are usually, I mean, some good, but they come with a lot of bad, you know, a lot of bad misconceptions or preconception, pre preconceived notions of what that means with those identities. And my kids hold all three. So I, I don't, um, they've always been able to hold their heads high. And sometimes their feelings have gotten hurt, you know, when they're little and they get told, oh, well, I can't play with you, or I don't want to play with you because of X, Y, and Z. And it's all related to their identity. And that's fine. You know, they're human, we're human. It's fine for feelings to get hurt to acknowledge, you know, that's horrible. My feelings mm-hmm. are hurt. And that doesn't mean that I should be any less proud of who I am and what I am. Exactly. So when they have come home with that, that, that negativity, that hurt, um, you know, can you give me an example of a time that happened and how you kind of, you know, navigated through it? Sure. Um, with Noah, when he was really little, he may, it may have been kindergarten, first grade. Um, he was a little boy, a fellow classmate told him that he couldn't, Noah couldn't come to his birthday party because he didn't believe in the baby Jesus. And Noah, his reaction, even though he's very level-headed and, and calm, he's a Scorpio. So he has his little temper. And he's like, I'm a Scorpio. Easy. Easy yeah. on Scorpios. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not saying it in a bad Because <laughs> people usually do. Because oh. they, they usually go, oh, Scorpio. Anyways, yay, if Scorpio. Fire to Scorpio. <laughs> yay, good. Scorpio. It's all good. <laughs> Continue. But because he actually didn't come home in tears about it, he was he was angry. Uh, but but he also was prepared, and he was very young. But he was prepared very young. Um, that's one example. Our daughter, who will be nine in a couple of weeks, um, is very fair, straight blonde hair, green eyes. To anyone who's just looking at her, thinking of color, they assume that she's white. They definitely don't assume that she's black. She was in again, also it was kindergarten, maybe first grade. And one of her classmates, um, they were sitting at their table doing whatever. It's like people with our skin color are white. And my daughter's like, no, I'm black. And they had this back and forth. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And so I actually went and I had to speak with her teacher and let her know um, one that if a little kid that young is hearing that they're repeating something. 100%. I mean, there's something that they're hearing at home, which I told Hannah as well. Um, And then explaining the idea of colorism in the history Mm -hmm. of that, at least in the context of the United States. Um, and what that means and why people may assume that about her, especially when she's with me and people don't assume that we're mother daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that for my approach to that is really just explaining to them the, you know, the way of the world, because it's going to be something that she encounters in certain spaces. Again, we're only Jews of color over there, over here. Yes. We're just Jews. And it, it's interesting because sometimes I'm like, I wish people would recognize that I'm American because I don't speak Hebrew. And everybody keeps coming up to me speaking Hebrew. I'm like, I yes, I, especially if you, <laughs> the, the worst for me is when I, when they do come up and they say, you know, Boker Tov, and I say, oh, Boker Tov, Manyanim. And then I think to myself, oh no, I think I've given them the impression that I'm going to continue on in Hebrew. What was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but it's a happy problem. Yes. <laughs> it's a happy problem. You 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 struck a you struck a a chord with me because we are both mothers of biracial children, and one of my children also on the surface, especially when he was younger, appears to be white. So I had, I remember even in the hospital, one of the nurses just kept walking in and out and looking at, looking at him, looking at me, looking, you know, and I knew I was like, oh, here we go. And so those, those questions and what it culminated in, yeah, Joshua got it a lot, you know, when they would meet his friends. One time I went to his school and they were all hanging out outside and I said something to Joshua and I left and it was probably grade two or something like that. And when I, when he came home, he's like, He's laughing. And I said, what's up? He said, oh, when you came to the school, they were like, who's that? Who's that? And he goes, well, that's my mom. Yeah, but she's black. Like, <laughs> it's just like, and I was like, and Josh, he was just like, whatever. I said, no, but she's my mom. And they let it go. Mm-hmm. But uh, interestingly enough, when they were, I can't even remember what age. I, I'm getting old, my memory. It's like one big age. But anyways, I can't remember what age. They were having an argument. My daughter and my son were having an argument and I could hear them. So Shelby is like, oh, you're, you're white because you sound white. You look white. You're white. I'm not, I'm black because I look black. I sound black. And and my friends, and and it was going back and forth. And I remember sitting there going, this could not be happening in my house. Mm -hmm. And so Joshua comes in and he's like, mom, Shelby says, eh, 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 eh. and I was like, okay, first of all, you have the same parents. <laughs> let, 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 let's just start there. Right there. <laughs> let's just start there. And, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know what talking black is. I don't know what acting white is. I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I can tell you. And so we, we had to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd started younger like you did with yours. <laughs> Because it was a disturbing conversation to have. <laughs> I wish I had gotten it over with. But speaking of disturbing conversation, you are raising, I know they're not uh, in the United States currently, but you're, especially your two older, correct? Correct. Um, so you are raising, you're raising Black men in the United States of America. How has that affected you as the mother of Black men? Um. I think that the fears I have for my, it's, it's interesting because my older two are here in Israel. Um, my oldest is a lone soldier. He's serving in the IDF. He's made Aliyah. He's going to be here. He's not leaving. Noah's in the process of making Aliyah. So he's still back and forth because visa stuff. Um, and whenever they come here, like come to Israel, family, friends, oh, tell them to be safe. Tell them to be safe. And I'm like, dude, we're from the U.S. They're safer over there. I, when, when they're here, I don't worry about them. I, I don't, even with any type of conflict or war or terror, I don't worry about them the same way when they're in Israel versus when they're in the U.S. And the idea of um, just the level of violence in the United States as a whole, let alone um, directed towards uh, young Black boys or men, um, is something that isn't normal. It's not mm-hmm. normal to feel this level of anxiety or fear when your kid or your son or your daughter steps mm-hmm. outside of your home. 
with their driver's license, insurance, car registered and running to go get to meet their friends or running to go, you know, drive through Starbucks or something to get me a latte. Um, the less like the level, <laughs> of, it, it, yeah. it's, it, it's not normal it, it, in realizing that um, as somebody from the United States, I think that I think that enough of us don't realize that that worry is it's not normal. It may have become normalized mm-hmm. because it's so common, but it's not normal. And uh, for Noah and Dimitri, and I tell them all the time, you know, you know, go have fun. I don't keep that. Like, I think that they need to explore without fear, but with awareness. So when they go hang out with their friends, I'm like, just shoot me a text when you get there and shoot me a text when you're leaving, because Mm -hmm. I want to time it. I know it takes you 30 minutes to get so-and-so. So if you're not back in 30 minutes, I'm going to think, okay, something may be wrong. But also don't feel like you have to live like you're a prisoner because you're not. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's just that, that balance, but I mean, all it's done is give me gray hair. Yeah. Wow. And it's a sad commentary on the U S of a, when you said that when they're at Israel, you don't worry, but in the United States, you worry. And I'm, I'm even as I'm, as you're saying, it, I'm kind of getting chills because I'm trying to process that. Um, we don't have that. We have a level of worry in Canada. It is not at that same level, obviously. But I know one time when the news became, there was more and more news about, and this is pre-George Floyd, more and more news about um, young Black men being shot while sitting in their car, being shot while reading a book, being shot by just being Black. And I remember saying to my son, do me a favor. And I said, because I don't ask much of him as an adult male. I don't ask a lot of him. But I said, I am asking this and this is non-negotiable. Do not go to the United States. Yeah. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, do not go to the United States. Full stop. Your Canadian citizenship will not save you. I said, all it will do is make it an international incident. I said, "Your, your perceived um, complexion will not save you. You are a black man. You are a black man, full stop. And so please, and I said, and I made him promise. I made him promise not to go to the United States. Never thought I'd ever have to say that. And he's like hearing it and saying it out loud. It sounds so, it sounds ridiculous, right? Doesn't I mean, it? it sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it's true. And I think that the idea of thinking of, so my youngest son is, um, he's 12 and thinking for him, I'm like, he can't go to college here, like in, in the U S not here. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I have, I have having our oldest to, uh, attend, attend university in the United States stressful enough. I can't imagine our youngest to going to university. Like I in the United States of America. And it's not that I expect that other places, they're not going to encounter racism or bigotry. That's the way of the world. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be deadly. Exactly. And that is a very real difference when in the context of the United States versus somewhere else. It shouldn't be deadly. And it not that it's okay in any other context. But no, but I know what you're saying. You shouldn't yeah. lose your life. You shouldn't right. lose your life. You know, my, I, 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 my only concern would, should be that if, you know, my son's called the N-word, not if he's shot in the head by a police officer. Right. 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 So. Do you think your entire family will um, make Alia Randy? Because I feel it kind of coming. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you love to travel, period, because I've looked with envy. I'm like, where is she now? <laughs> what is happening with this family? Can I join them? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but, but seriously, 
what are your plans in terms of Israel? Because you do go back and forth. You do spend chunks of time there. You, like you said, you have one son who's a lone soldier and which I think is freaking amazing. And it really speaks to the love of Israel that you've imparted in your children. You have Noah who is there working on his music, making his plans to, you know, never shall he return to the U.S. of A. to say, hey, and that's it. So what about the rest of y'all? When are y'all going? For good? I mean, in the process. And to me, nothing's ever for good. I can't imagine sitting still in one place. I can't. I mean, I spent over 20 years uh, married to a service member. So we traveled all over. Oh, that's right. So I'm like, ah, I get, um, I get, I get a wanderlust. Oh, I forgot you're, 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 you're a wandering Jew, but anyway, so so, so what do you think? We're actually, our paperwork is in the process right now. So we're working, um, uh, which is a slow, slow process and obviously slow down because of COVID and getting apostilles and getting official copies of everything. And then um, my husband was born in the former Soviet Union. So getting his, all those records, it's just. His part will probably be more challenging than yours. Yeah. Seriously. (laughs) But but we're actually in the process of of that right now. And we're in, you know, we we rented an apartment in Hedera last year. That's where I am right now. And I love it here. Oh, Israel is, I, I, I try and be tactful and respectful of the country I'm born in, but like, I got to say, Israel's like my favorite place. (laughs) It really is. I don't think, you know, you said, you mentioned how even Jews of color that you're right. When I go to Israel, I'm just a Jew. The most exciting thing about me in their mind is that I'm Canadian. And I don't even know how they think that's exciting. But then when I mentioned the Jamaican background, they're like, oh, Bob Marley. Yeah, Bob Marley, not related, not related. (laughs) You know, so, but there is this, this beautiful sense of comfort. So, you know, but having said that, I've noticed, you know, on social media that people try and including our fellow Jews of color, try to paint Israel in a particular, well, not even with a with a racist paintbrush you know they will say people say oh i'm not going to israel because they're racist and these are jews of color say mm-hmm. oh, i'm not going to israel because they're racist and, and, and or um look at what they do to this group and that group and oh no i'm sure i'll have problems and it goes on and on how would you address that as somebody who spent a good chunk of time i would tell them come come and see and that's also um acknowledging that there are I don't even know if you call it racism because it's like inter-community you know uh color-based conflict and intention it's not that that like that doesn't exist here but it's not the same and what I've found is a lot of people at least in the U.S. look at it from a very U.S. American centric lens and you can't export that here it doesn't work it doesn't apply and the only time I hear people saying that is when they haven't actually spent time here and not just I'm going to go to Israel and just stay in Tel Aviv like in the entirety of the country because the diversity and the complexity of this place is something that can't be shrunken down and defined in American-centric terms, racial terms and color-based terms. It doesn't work. And um, and yes, there's a history of a lot of color-based discrimination and, and diaspora-based discrimination that occurred here. That's not erasing that. And some of it still occurs. I don't think that that's... Um, that, that I ha- would even try to attempt or attempt to, to deny that, especially coming as an outsider. I'm not right. going to deny people's experiences. They've, they've experienced a lot of uh, discrimination. 
Mm-hmm. And it's not the same. These kids, no, it's not even like, oh, it's better. or Oh, it's not, you know, it's worse in the US. It's just not the same. Okay. It's not that this country does not have the same history as the United States of America. Right, right. Um, you, you said an interesting thing, diaspora based. Elaborate on that. So looking at where people, I mean, this is a country of returnees. So you have people that their communities spent how many centuries or generations in the diaspora. So if they were in the diaspora in Ethiopia and finally returned home as returnees, their experience isn't going to necessarily be the same as people who were part of the diaspora in Poland and they returned to the homeland. It's Mm -hmm. different. And there's a lot of discrimination and misunderstanding because those generations spent outside of the land Mm -hmm. impacted culture and influence things, anything from food to language to um, level of religious practice to et cetera, et cetera, into accent. So of course there's been any, usually when they bring people together and there's any difference, there's going to be tension. And that has occurred here. And some of it is small micro level tension. Some of it's macro level tension that the country's still overcoming. Mm -hmm. And I don't, uh, I, I, um, I wouldn't be true and honest to the experience and stories of so many people if I ignored that. Right. right. And, and I, it's not, it's not, it's, it's nowhere near I'm going to come here and just immediately face race-based discrimination because somebody's going to look at me as a black woman and treat me so poorly. That just isn't, um, it, it's not like, it's just not like what happens in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask a really loaded question and it's, um, it will never be fully explored in one podcast, but I need to ask. Um, you're in Israel, you have a lone soldier son, a potential, another lone soldier son. Um, I'm not going to say you'll have two more lone soldiers because you all will be living there. So it won't be lone soldiers. It will, they will just be doing their service. <laughs> but you know, one of the things that comes up inevitably when we talk about Israel, it's not about, it's not the food. It's not Tel Aviv. It's not it is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I just want you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit of your views around that, your views as Brandy around that, living in the land, being so involved in um, writing about the topic, writing about Israel, writing about Zionism, and so on. So I'd like you to share with us, what are your views? Do you see any, and people can't see me, but I'm doing quotation marks, peace, (laughs) <laughs> do you see what do you see I, I think that <clears throat> on an individual human level it's possible I think on a political level it's so ridiculously complicated that I don't know if any type of real like you said peace um would happen on a governmental level in my lifetime only because of the com- the complications there there is a um, very large segment of the international community that is benefiting from this conflict continuing the idea of um of keeping you know hold hold that thought say that again (laughs) elaborate on the benefiting okay so well the idea of passing down refugee status to only this small teeny tiny group of people in the global context is not, if that continues, why would there ever be peace? Other countries surrounding Israel that have a Palestinian refugee population, and I'm saying that in quotes, get money to keep them as refugees. They get money for not um, having those, those population groups become citizens of the nations that they've been hosted in for generations. So 
why would there be if if there was any type of for example a two-state solution and those populations that are deemed refugees right now by the international community were patriated to their new homeland those nation those nation states would lose a lot of money that they're wow. getting from the international community that's one one example okay the, uh, the other one is the idea of just geography this is i mean i'm originally from california this country this land is teeny and I don't know if if people can really grasp how small it is geographically. Yeah. And when you think about having defensible borders, when you have a segment of the Palestinian population in this region in Gaza who elected a terrorist organization to be their political representatives, there's no making peace with that. And this is the you know me speaking as Brandy. Yes, I'm yeah. I'm an old school American. There's no negotiating with terrorists. So how do you ne- negotiate with that? It's yeah, that it just oh, can't occur. I'm not American, but I'm still old school that way. <laughs> there's yeah, we there's, do not negotiate with terrorists. And and also, how is there how, how would there ever be a negotiation when one group is saying we want everything and to kill you all, and the other group is saying we want to not be killed? True. And the, like there are very hard realities. And until we actually address that, I don't know how we get to peace. Now, on an individual level. Jews and, and Arabs have been living here and sometimes in conflict and sometimes in peace, like any other two group, distinct groups that live next to each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we don't really appreciate and recognize that and understand that as not just as Jewish people, as global people, period, that that exactly we have lived in peace and sometimes with conflict and is exactly how you've said it, just like any other country, groups of people, period. You know, it is a very challenging topic. It is um, because there's just so many, so many factors, you know, we can try and boil it down to black and white, but there's so many emotions and so many, so much more involved in it that it is, it is virtually, I, I agree with you. I think in my lifetime, not so much. Not so much. I don't even know if it may be my grandchildren's lifetime. And even still, I'm not putting any money on it. Mm-hmm. I'm keeping my money. I'm <laughs> keeping my money because I'll need it when I move to Israel. <laughs> <laughs> on a light note, what is your favorite part of Israel? Don't you dare say Hadera because that's cheating. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I the last year we were here for four months. That was my first time being in Israel. And I mean, half of that's on. Really? Yeah. Cause of, so this is my second time here and we're here for an extended time. It's not, a, not short trips, but it's also during COVID. So the thing I've, I've been to a few places, you know, rent a car and we could be alone, not like taking public transport. We could be, be yeah. COVID safe and, and see things, but so many things aren't or weren't open last year. And this year I'm just readjusting to, you know, throwing off the jet lag. So, Oh, the jet um, lag's the worst. Yeah, it was really bad for me this time. This is, I think, the worst I've ever been jet lagged. But I think the people, I think being here um, and realizing how um, dedicated people are to living in a place that's just very harsh. It's hard to live here. And seeing the love that people have for their for their um, land, for their country, for their traditions, for all of that is one of the most beautiful things I love about being here. And we're going to as soon as we finish our isolation, quarantine and stuff, um, rent a car and go to Jerusalem and explore that more because I haven't nice. been the, our oldest two are always like, oh, you have to go here and they're going to drag us all over the place. So we'll probably oh, that'll be fantastic. Ready, it'll be great. Yeah. But I think that just um, 
it's there's just something different to me about actually being here and being any place that like that the ancestors walked yeah the ancestors exactly exactly well enjoy again so envious i'm living vicariously through you but i know one day god willing we too shall meet whether it's well, it won't be in the United States. Sorry, girl, it won't be in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come to Canada. Yeah, Wait, did you, they reopen you, the border? <laughs> apparently, they did because there was a. Um, I saw pictures, and it was a zoo, a madhouse of oh, people seriously? frantically crossing over into Canada. I guess some expats and other people are like, "Hey, man, my cottage is up there. I haven't seen it in two years." Those people, <laughs> and made me think. Oh dear, oh dear. But yeah, we're invading. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh no, it is happening. They're trying to take us over. But no, but but no seriousness. Absolutely, you come to me. Um, you can come up north uh, on the lake, and we can hang out. Um, I'm not taking you to any of the cities, so don't even hope for that. But <laughs> but um, barring that, we will meet in Israel. We will meet in Israel, and we'll take off, and we'll see it from top to bottom, and we'll just have a blast. Sounds so great. And we might include your kids too we'll see <laughs> yeah, maybe. We'll see. maybe we'll see we'll see we'll see but brandy i thank you so much um i've been looking forward to this moment for quite some time and i am just thrilled i also have in the back of my head that i want to do a shifatinsky family podcast <laughs> i totally do I totally, totally do. And, um, but I shall wait because I think I have to wait until your son is out of army. Um, and then absolutely. So that sounds amazing. Keep, keep some space, keep some space for me. Okay. All right. So well, thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today and, uh, we'll catch up. I'll be lurking on your pages. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Riff Goosh. Our producer is Michael Freeman, music by Westside Gravy, and I am Rivka Campbell. You can find us at the CJN or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, tell a friend, share, keep the good news going, and definitely leave a review. Thanks for listening. It's time we talk about more than just the tragedy, the hardships we've overcome, and the savagery. It's time we focus on what's woven in the tapestry, the roots that connect us to our truth and the canopy of every single branch of our tradition. The story that's been told and those yet to be written. A tale of persistence and account of achievement all across the globe, every single place that them leaves went. Scattered in the wind, never scattered too thin. To remember where we come from and the gold that's within. Zahav Yerushalayim, Asur Lishkoach, Hakdushat Ha'aretz, Shenotel Anukoach. Scattered in the wind, never scattered too thin. To remember where we come from and the gold that's within.